It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I like to play the drums. Think I'm getting good, but I can handle criticism. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkobach. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is going to be the first part of a two-part series we're doing about the future of diabetes and diabetes treatment. And Lauren, this is a topic you have been hankering to do for a while. I've, I've been suggesting it for kind of ever uh, because I, I, keep, I keep running into all of these new research articles about amazing things that have been done in the, uh, in, in the treatment and 
diagnosis of diabetes. And, and, and it's a really big issue. I mean, this isn't a thing that like, you know, seven people are, are dealing with. This is, this is a little bit larger than that. Not, not the things that only seven people are dealing with are not worth looking into. I mean, for those seven people, it could be, it could be huge. But no, that is exactly the point that why we wanted to tackle this. Diabetes is something that affects millions of people. It's going to affect millions more in the future. Obviously, it's one of those topics that we should look at and say, what's the forward-thinking approach to dealing with managing, uh, uh, diagnosing, perhaps in some distant future, curing diabetes? Yeah, I would say with diabetes, it's not exactly like uh, all other diseases, not not just because it affects so many, but because it is one where I would say at least from from where I'm, you know, I'm no expert, but just in what I read, the end does sort of seem to be in sight with diabetes more so than with many other chronic diseases. Uh, at, sure. At the very least, the the facility with which we can manage diabetes today has has increased exponentially over the last several decades. And, and that there's just a lot of research progress. Yes, there are entire organizations that have been uh, in in existence for since like the 1940s that have been dedicated to researching and, and treating and diagnosing uh, diabetes. So, uh, yeah. And before we got into this research, I didn't realize how long ago people knew about this. Wow. Yeah. We've got a timeline to go through. Yeah. That I, I, I went a little crazy, y'all, uh, when I was researching the history of diabetes and our understanding of it. And uh, okay. I, we should all know better than to put a history section in there. I, I know. I kept thinking <laughs> I should skip some stuff, but I kept finding things that were so fascinating. But first, let's let's talk about yeah. some numbers about why this is such a big deal. Yeah, yeah, because you said millions of people. So I yeah. mean, so so what's 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 millions of people? We've got like like trillions of people on the planet. <laughs> Not quite trillions yet, but I trillions get your point. Trillions and trillions. Uh, sometimes <laughs> it feels that way when you're on a crowded MARTA train. But <laughs> according to uh, a Center for Disease Control report in uh, uh, 2014, there are 29.1 million people in the United States who have diabetes, and 8.1 million of those people are undiagnosed. Ooh. So there's only like 300 and something million people in the United States. That's it, a significant percentage. 9.3% of the population in 2014. So nine, almost 10% of the population having diabetes, and out of that group, 27.8% of them don't have it as a diagnosed condition. They may be aware that something is wrong, especially if they're suffering some of the more uh, severe symptoms of diabetes, but they haven't been formally diagnosed with the disease. Um, Percentage-wise, the group that has the highest incidence rate of diabetes is the 65 and older group. That's 25.9% uh, of the population. More than a quarter of all people over the age of 65 in the United States have diabetes. As with many diseases, this uh, is a disease where risk factor tends to increase with age. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And then uh, the actual largest, as far as sheer numbers go, like the, sh the largest number of people, that would be in the 45 to 64 year old uh, age range uh, with 13.4 million diabetics. But that only accounts for 16.2% of people in that age range. So percentage-wise, it's fewer, but in sheer numbers, it's the largest population. So uh, one of those fun things that you start to think about when you start you know, grouping people into percentages. Uh, more men than women are diabetic in the United States. There are 15.5 million men with diabetes versus 13.4 million women. And that same CDC report 
estimated that the total cost of diabetes in the United States in 2012 was 245 billion with a B dollars. Whew. 245, almost 250 billion dollars. Uh, so that includes both direct and indirect costs. So if you look at just the direct costs of diabetes, this being the, the diagnosis and treatment and management of the disease, that's 176 billion. So still, I mean, enormous number. Uh, indirect costs, in case you're wondering, well, what, what the heck is that entail? According to the CDC, they were uh, lumping in things like disability, uh, loss of productivity due to the fact that people are missing work, uh, and premature death as uh, contributors to indirect costs. Uh, globally, it's been estimated that about 12% of all health expenditure is going to diabetes treatment. So, yeah, this is where the word trillion can, be start, can start to get thrown around because when you're looking on a global scale, uh, it, is, it is an enormous issue, both financially and obviously as a quality of life and, and just uh, uh, health and survivability uh, issues around the world, which is why we're really tackling it. It doesn't look like things are getting particularly better right now. The diabetes uh, uh, prognosis is that it's going to be on the increase over the next few years. Uh, yeah, d despite the optimistic news that we're going to have, it, oh, like 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 kind of the the warning signs are out there. Researchers are sort of going like, "Hey guys." Yeah, uh, according to one paper I was reading, uh, by 2030, there's an expectation that there will be 552 million people with diabetes worldwide. And it's, and it's difficult to make global estimates about this kind of thing because some researchers think that many more cases go undiagnosed and, and underestimated even in those undiagnosed cases uh, in other parts of the world. The, the number of cases right now could be 125 percent of what we currently think there are, a.k.a. about uh, 520 million cases worldwide. Which would mean that – you would guess that number for 2030 would be even higher because that was based upon sort of what we are pretty sure uh, or what we know so far. Oh, right, right. Uh, in, in the U.S. alone, rates and expenses of diabetes are expected to very nearly double during that time period. Yeah, that's something else we'll be chatting about quite a bit. In fact, let's go ahead and, and kind of transition into that. There's been a lot of news over the past several years about increases in the price of insulin. And we're going to talk more about diabetes and what uh, insulin, you know, what factor insulin plays in diabetes management. But the important thing to remember here is insulin uh, dosages are, are something that, that people with type 1 or type 2 diabetes, uh, that's usually part of their diabetes management sure, sure. regimen. People with type 1, you need it. People with type 2, you might not need yeah. it, but you should certainly have access to it. Yes, yes. So... There are a lot of different types of insulin, uh, not just in how it interacts with the body, but how it's produced. And that makes this conversation a little more complicated. It, it's not like we have a single vat that says insulin and you just draw off as much as you need and you're good to go. There's actually lots of different types. There's long acting, there's short acting, there's instant acting. There's all different types of ways to derive insulin. Uh, so it gets pretty complicated. Uh, but the thing you need to remember is that the pharmaceutical game is a for-profit deal. So as that, it means, you know, the companies are trying to make a profit selling insulin, uh, no matter what the type may be. There's not as much competition as it sounds based upon the fact that there's so many different types of insulin. There are actually 
a few major companies that are they, they provide the vast majority of insulin and in, in, uh, at least in the United States. Um, and there are a lot of other factors that are playing a role here, including drug wholesalers, pharmacies, insurance companies. All of these things affect the price of insulin. Uh, and part of the price also depends upon something that is completely independent of diabetes and the demand for insulin. And that is that the overall drug sales have been on uh, on a decrease. Like they've been, they've been decreasing over time. So that sounds like that's pretty good, except for pharmaceutical companies that want to make a profit. Huh. One way you uh. can offset your losses in one area is to increase the prices of another drug that's still in demand in another area. And while that's not the only cause or even necessarily the primary cause for insulin prices on the increase, it is a factor. It is a contributing factor. Um, in fact, pharmaceutical companies said as much in a 2011 Reuters Health Summit. They admitted to the fact that part of the reason the insulin prices were on the increase is because other drugs were not selling as much. So you cover your losses in one area by increasing the price on another. Uh, it's frustrating, but that's kind of how capitalism tends to work. So um, anyway, the drug companies are are really seeing a benefit to the strategy, as you would imagine. I mean, you've got a growing market, more people being diagnosed with diabetes who need access to these medications. You can increase the price of those medications. So more people buying stuff for more money means yay for companies that make the stuff, mm. right? So um, – and I don't want to demonize anybody in this. It's not – I certainly have very strong opinions you on the matter. You might not want to. Uh, no, no. no. <laughs> I, I, I I absolutely understand their their strategy behind this. But when you, when you hear stories about parents of children with type 1 diabetes who are paying as much as their mortgage right. uh, every month to, to get an insulin supply, it's like, oh, that's not – that's not chill. Yeah, there. I I do have a lot of strong opinions, but they also range on the political scale, which is why I'm trying sure. trying no, 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 to be no. as objective as possible. Absolutely. That that um, was a that was an emotional aside from me. I and, will... and I completely agree mm -hmm. with it, for mm -hmm. the record. Uh, but another issue that we have here is that the United States doesn't regulate the price of prescription drugs. Right. So this this really plays into that, right? We don't have a regulatory body that says. You can't do that. We're, we're seeing stuff play out right now in the United States that is sort of related to this uh, issue. You know, we had uh, the Congress calling up the CEO of the, the company that makes EpiPens to really talk about the the increase in EpiPen uh, costs over the last, you know, five or six years. And so we're starting to see that kind of take a turn here in the U.S. But as of right now, there is no official body that says, Hey, you can't charge that much because people, real people are dying or are suffering or, or they're, they're taking extreme measures to stretch their supply as much as possible in order to be able to afford to, to live. And so there's, there's a lot of that going on right now. Also, you might remember we did an episode about biologics. And insulin falls into that category, meaning that they aren't as easy to replicate in the lab as small molecule drugs that you would you would create a generic for. Uh, right. It's, it's a relatively uncomplicated biologic, but it's still much more complicated than, for example, uh, aspirin. Yeah. So, you, you know, and patents can expire on the process for creating uh, bio, biologically um, derived 
drugs. But that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to come along and create a cheaper, faster, uh, more efficient method of manufacturing it and thus lower the cost and pass the savings on to you. That's not necessarily going to be the case. In fact, uh, there's only so much cost you can cut from the manufacturing side on, the, on biologics. So uh, that doesn't necessarily mean someone couldn't come in and sell this stuff for less but, it, but why would you when you can be making all of this lovely money with right. which you can make a beautiful hat? Yeah, yeah, you can you can sit there and and uh, and and light your 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 giant stogie with your hundred dollar bills. Um, I'm sure they're using it for for drug development and paying many of their hard workers as well. Sure. Not just for money hats, but no. but but exact. I mean, I, get, getting into numbers, it's hard. To, uh, another thing that it's difficult to estimate is is the actual cost of a drug here in the United States because the process of uh, obtaining insurance and then obtaining drugs either through that or through another program, um, it it means that we don't have like a solid price sheet for right. a lot of stuff. Right. But you, right. you looked into one of the estimates. Yeah, this is OK. So this is this, again, illustrates how complicated things are here in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, too. Sure. Uh, you could have two people in line to buy the exact same drug and one person's going to pay one price and another person's going to pay a dramatically different price and it could all depend upon the way that they are paying for that drug, whether it's out of pocket, through insurance, through programs like Medicaid. Uh, these all have an impact and it's all because of the different relationships that are going on behind the scenes to set prices. And it gets kind of crazy because like we're used to the idea of you go to a store – and if if Lauren wants to buy like uh, 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 some some chocolate milk, and I want to buy some chocolate milk, we're not charged different prices for that chocolate milk. I mean, it might be it might be like twenty cents more expensive at like your favorite big box store versus yes. at my favorite. Big but if box we're going store. to the same store, yeah. I mean, I mean, okay. Let's be fair. Some stores they have a picture of me and they say charge an extra dollar for chocolate milk. He is a chocolate milk fiend and he doesn't pay attention to price tags. But. In a fair world, that doesn't happen. But in the drug world, that's to it's totally different. So there was a, a research fellow, uh, Dr. Jing Luao, who uh, was worked in the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics. Wow, I didn't think I was going to get through either of those uh, at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. They wrote an article in 2015 for JAMA, in her Internal Medicine. <laughs> I always like to go, JAMA. For this, so, you know, get a jam out. Sure. Uh, so he found that between 1991 and 2014, Medicaid costs per unit of insulin increased between uh, $6.86 per unit to $15.38 per unit, depending upon the type of insulin. Now, this was just through Medicaid. But, he, but yeah. the, the same is true across the board. And he said no matter how he cut or analyzed the data – there was always a price increase. It didn't matter how he was looking. Like you couldn't right. massage the data so that there wasn't a price hike. Right. To, to, to clarify, yeah, like 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 increasing by $6.86 was the lowest yes. of the price increases yes. that occurred. And and it went all the way up to that $15.38. Per unit. Per and, unit. And, and that was – and again, it depended upon the type of insulin. Mm -hmm. uh, like we mentioned earlier, there were tons of different types of insulin. Yeah. Um, and some types of insulin, like long-acting insulin, were affected more than others, largely because fewer diabetic patients were using long-acting insulin, and companies still had to produce it. There's still a demand for it, but to offset that manufacturing cost of producing something when 
you know, if you're a company and you're producing insulin and no one is using this particular type, you could shut that production down, switch that those resources to something else and make more money. But if there's still a demand for it, but it's not as big a demand as it used to be, then the way you cover those losses again is you hike the price. Uh, and this ends up being a burden on people who are dependent upon that specific type of insulin. Uh, this is a huge problem for a, an, a growing number of people. So it's it's even more of uh, more concern than if it were just a huge problem to start with. It's a huge problem and the number of people it affects is increasing. So diabetes is an illness that disproportionately affects people in lower socioeconomic classes, largely because they may not have access to uh, m- a good healthy diet and sure. or they may not have the opportunity to do uh, any sort of exercise routines or anything. Things that have been shown to, if not prevent diabetes, often either decrease its effects or uh, or put off when it would actually set in uh, for a person. Uh, so, sure, sure. Also, recent studies have shown, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, that stuff like uh, like stress and even air quality can can be uh, increasing risks yeah. uh, can can increase your risks of developing type two diabetes. So. And not only that, but you have people in these same socioeconomic classes who will go to extreme measures to skip or ration medications to reduce that financial impact they have for purchasing medications. Uh, that can also lead to patients attempting to manage diabetes primarily through diet. Like in other words, n- you know, trying their best to eat a healthy diet and not have to take insulin because insulin is so expensive. Which certainly helps um, and can in some cases lead to effective management of the disease, but in many cases it cannot. Right. Uh, there, it, it cannot help in type 1. I mean, right. it, it will not it will not magically have you produce insulin if you have type one diabetes. We'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, if you have type two diabetes and it's not severe, it might be that through managing your diet and exercising more, that's all you need. And you don't have to take any insulin shots or, or have any other method of having uh, insulin doses. But for some people, that's just it's just not enough. It's physically not enough. It's not that they are bad people. It is not that they aren't working hard enough. It is not that they're not eating healthy enough. They literally aren't producing enough insulin. So I want to make that clear. I don't want any sort of blaming going on yeah. here for people who actually are suffering through this. I mean, if you can if you can get a direct fax to that to those people's like pancreas, pancreases, pancreas, yeah. um, then maybe you can blame the pancreas. Yeah, but as far as we know, the pancreas is not one of the more sentient organs and therefore hasn't made any, you know, actual decisions. It never responds to my Snapchats. Yeah. Weird Al wrote a song about it. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote a song about the pancreas. I don't remember that one. I, I just remember that there is one. I, that's all I remember. Wait, no. Are you thinking of part of Like a Surgeon? No, no, no. That is <laughs> that, that song I, I could do from beginning to end right now because uh, he finally made it through med school. Somehow he made it through. But no, the, there guys, is – Let's an, do a karaoke episode sometime. Oh, man. She knows not what she asks for. <laughs> uh, so at any rate, uh, we need to remember that – these effects aren't just devastating for the people who can no longer afford or, or have are having difficulty affording insulin. It affects all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, whether it's affecting us through insurance rates or other types of economic factors, even if you have no emotional connection with somebody who's mm-hmm. going through this, 
there is an impact. Yeah, the, the the loss of productivity in a workplace, the the overall right, the the rates of insurance, the mm-hmm. um, the, the the rates of of hospital availability uh, due to those resources being taken up by by people who have unfortunately encountered side effects with that kind of disease. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, what I'm saying is is it, you, you don't have to be a crazy socialist in order to, yes. to 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 want to help solve this problem. No, this this problem is something that. Everyone, regardless of your economic philosophy, should want solved because no matter what, it does have an impact, right? You know, so yeah, uh, uh, and so yeah. So what? What is diabetes? We've been talking about it for like yeah, for like trillions kind of, a, of minutes kind of ahead already. Of ourselves here. Well, you know, like like I wanted to I wanted to do that thing where we go like like Hey, there's this problem. You've maybe heard of it, and then we describe what it is. It might have been better to do it. <laughs> no, no, no. This is great. All is right. It? Yeah. What yeah, is diabetes? So, <laughs> Let's let's talk about diabetes. Yeah. So <laughs> diabetes. Hey, and I'm going to take laughter wherever we can find it in these episodes, because I mean, this is something that I feel very strongly about. In the interest of full disclosure, one of my parents is uh, type two diabetic. Oh, so mm-hmm. this I, I and I also obviously am concerned. I'm I don't know if you guys know this, Lauren, you do because you bring it up all the time. I'm getting up there in years. So I, I am concerned about this sort of stuff. Um, I, I think that if you go back through the record, Joe and I have equal mocking. Yeah, but you were also my co-host on Tech Stuff oh, for two okay. years. So <laughs> I don't think Fair. I've ever mocked your age. What are you about? <laughs> Usually, you're the one who brings it up. Uh, that's true. I, I I am probably the most guilty of the three of us. So uh, diabetes, also known as diabetes mellitus is a disease in which the body suffers due to blood sugar levels that are too high. So glucose levels in the blood are uh, above healthy levels. And glucose, to be fair, is important stuff. I mean, it is what our cells use as a fuel source. But to get the glucose where you need it, your body produces a hormone called insulin. And diabetes is a disease, really kind of a a family of diseases that impact insulin production leading to increased blood sugar levels. So you you mainly have type 1 and type 2 diabetes. There are other ones as well, but those are the two big broad categories, right? Yeah. And so the the common distinction that is made is the type 1 diabetes is the diabetes that is experienced from early onset diabetes yeah. and type 2 diabetes is adult onset diabetes. Yeah, it's, that's what it used to be known as. In fact, that was the official term for type 2 diabetes until hmm. relatively recently. When uh, when I guess it, you, you realized you didn't have to be an adult. Yeah, <laughs> right. No, uh, but but as, as we've said earlier in this episode, in type 1, um, your body does not produce insulin at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because type 1 diabetes is actually an autoimmune disorder. Uh, the, the, the body's overzealous immune system is targeting and killing the cells in the, in the pancreas that make your insulin for you. Yeah, those are called beta cells. Or some, sometimes uh, uh, in, in... Islets of Langerhans. Isl- mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, no wonder I couldn't just say that off Islets the top of, of my Langerhans. head. That's very strange. I looked it up. But the, uh, the, <laughs> yeah, the beta cells in this case are attacked by T cells, immune system, white blood mm-hmm. cells. Right, that, right. Uh, that, and in fact, there's ongoing research about why the T cells attack the beta cells and and, uh, and discovering the cause of this is one way that we might be able to help discover ways of curing diabetes in the future. But there is some research on that that we will get to either later in this episode or probably in the next one, actually. I, th- I think in the second episode, yeah. Yeah, and th- yeah. And then we've got type 2 diabetes. Uh, right. Where the body 
might produce insulin, but it doesn't do it very well. It's not very effective at it. Uh, so glucose tends to stay in the bloodstream and accumulate and get to dangerous levels. It's the much, it is much, much more common than type 1 diabetes. Uh, yeah. In the United States, about 95% of diabetes cases are type 2. And, uh, and, and what happens in type 2 specifically is that for a number of reasons, um, the, the, the body becomes resistant to insulin. It no longer, insulin no longer prompts your body's cells to take glucose to take glucose out of the bloodstream. Um, so, so your glucose levels in the blood remain high, which prompts your pancreas to keep making more and more insulin. Um, eventually, this leads to a, an overload situation where the, the pancreas's beta cells start dying off because they just haven't had a break. And then there are other types, uh, a big one being uh, gestational diabetes that occurs in about 7% of all pregnant women in the United States. Uh, it has the same symptoms as type 2 diabetes and generally happens the first time a woman is pregnant. Uh, it often will go away after the woman gives birth, but it can increase the risk of the woman later developing type 2 diabetes. Uh, so, uh, and like we said, there are other ones as well. There's one that's actually linked to steroid usage, in fact. But, hmm. um, but, oh, right. But oh. the primary ones are, are really type 2 and then type 1. Uh, so what's the big deal? What, why are we worried about glucose in the bloodstream? Well, yeah, in and of itself, it's not terrible, but it leads to some deterioration of different things in the body. Yeah, like your kidneys and your eyes are often two, uh, two types of tissue that are, are first affected by this. Uh, so you can suffer uh, impairment. Vision impairment, you can go blind, actually. You can suffer really bad kidney damage. It can also cause nerve damage. Uh, it can contribute to heart disease or strokes, as well as some other related issues. Uh, it can also necessitate amputation in some cases. And the reason for that is that you could suffer nerve damage in your extremities, mostly your feet, most frequently your feet. And then not notice when you, when you develop things like sores or other injuries on those, on your feet. Uh, which can then get worse and worse to the point where they necessitate an amputation. Um, and so th actually that's one of the things that, that doctors will tell you if they diagnose you with diabetes is to frequently inspect your feet because you may have uh, sores or wounds or something along those lines that you weren't aware of because you couldn't feel it mm -hmm. due to the nerve damage. But if you're able to take care of your feet, then you can uh, you can avoid the necessity of an amputation further down the road. Um, and, and all of this is part of why it's so important that that people have access to insulin who need it because that helps uh, that helps mitigate that kind of damage that can yes. happen in the body. Yes, uh, yeah. So th this is life or death yeah. is really what we're talking about. You know, it's and and to really bring home how big a problem this w is and how long it's been around, we now have Jonathan's epic timeline of diabetes. It, Not my yeah. personal one. <laughs> As far as I know, I'm. I, I if I do have diabetes, I am. I'm currently undiagnosed. Uh, but it really is an epic timeline, though. Oh yeah, no, it's crazy. I, uh, so I, the first timeline I I consulted really started in 1910, and it was sure. going. It was going into like the formal academic, mm -hmm. uh, real deep study of diabetes. But if you want to look at how long have people been aware that something along these lines was going on and sort of the path of discovery to figuring out what was actually happening, you got to go way back to 1552 BC. And this is, by the way, just the earliest known record. So it could predate, like, like our, our knowledge of something 
related to diabetes could predate this. But uh, Hezi Ra, a physician, noted the uh, symptom of frequent urination for an as-yet-unnamed disease at that time, which is later by by experts been uh, identified as diabetes. Right. Um, in 1500 BC, there are Hindu writings that make reference to an emaciating disease that has an odd symptoms, which is that ants are attracted to the urine of people who have the disease. I They're, imagine that's because we discovered later that the kidneys are trying to purge glucose from the body through the urine. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's elevated levels of glucose or sugar in the urine and ants like are, sugar, they like sugar. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, 500 BC were the huh. first descriptions of sugar being present in the urine of people with the disease, the disease specifically obese people. Uh, 250 BC, uh, Apollonius of Memphis coins the term diabetes. So we get the term 250 BCE. That's crazy. That's it. We got diabetes. 250 uh, BCE. So the word uh, means to go through or to siphon, and it's referencing the symptom of a patient draining more fluid than they can ah. consume. So that frequent urination. Huh. So that was the defining feature of the disease for a very long time because that was, you know, obviously early physicians had to had very limited um, means to base their observations, right? They couldn't look into the human body without usually killing somebody. So that right. kind of made it difficult to pursue <laughs> any kind of... Harder, yes, yeah, to do life studies. Challenging. First century CE, the... Greeks describe diabetes as a disease that results in, quote, a melting down of the flesh and limbs into urine, end quote. I love Mm. ideas that people have. Yeah. Uh, If you skip ahead about 163 years to 164 in the Common Era, uh, Galen of Pergamum, a Greek physician, diagnoses diabetes as a kidney disease. Uh, This would not be the only time people were slightly off track. Mm-hmm. You know, they you can understand yeah, they're, why they're they going made that. Mostly urine. Yep. Kidneys equal urine. Yep. That's kidney where disease. Just working backward mm-hmm. just turned out that they were not quite on the mm-hmm. right track there. Then we get into the dark ages. Uh, physicians would diagnose diabetes with water tasters, which is exactly what you think it is, I'm guessing. Making water, tasting the water that yeah, you make. Exactly. The physicians would take a sip of the patient's urine and if they tasted sugar, if the urine had any sweetness to it, they would know that the patient had diabetes. Wow. Doctors really went the extra mile in the dark ages. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's also when they added the word mellitus to diabetes. Mellitus is Latin for honey. So sweetness. So you've got mm-hmm. to siphon from diabetes and then you have honey uh, with the mellitus. So. Siphoning sweetness from your body. Yeah. Yeah. So 16th century, we get uh, it's poetic. Go ahead, yeah, yeah. Paracelsus, who is a Swiss German philosopher, physician, and occultist. Uh, so he said that diabetes is a serious general disorder. Getting away from that specific kidney diagnosis from earlier. Uh, now we're going to skip over to 1776. A lot of stuff was going on that year. Don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but you know there was yeah. a whole whole musical about it. So I won't <laughs> bore you here. Uh, just to say, sit down, John. Um, an English physician by the name of Matthew Dobson made notes about diabetes and noticed that some people die in less than five weeks, while others can live with a chronic condition and, depending upon the severity, could survive for several years, uh, which is really the earliest record of someone making note that there seems to be two different pathways for this disease. Not to the point where any kind of formal <laughs> uh, description was made of either type, but rather just a general observation. 
Then we get to 1797. A Scottish military surgeon named John Rollo uh, experimented with patients by putting them on a high-fat and protein diet after noticing that the sugar content in their urine would increase if they ate starchy foods. So the idea was get them off the starchy foods, put them on high-fat and protein diet foods. And the following year, he published a work saying that there was a uh, uh, elevated level of sugar in the blood as well as the urine. So this is the first time we actually see someone say, Maybe there's more to this. One of these other humors could possibly be involved. Involved, in, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not, not that people were still using the idea of humor. Were they? They were not, were not they? by people the People are still using it today. Okay, all right. Well, well, some people misuse humor, and I call those the satire sites that don't – no, never mind. That's totally different topic. Sorry, I just got – completely distracted uh skipping ahead to 1848 by the way there's tons of other stuff that i could have included i i finally got some self-control and began to not include every little interesting fact i was coming across but in 1848 uh, a french physician claude barnard we oui, oui? we Francais. i'm so bad at french i i casey where's casey my, pegram my french is terrible yeah my french is terrible uh so pardonnez-moi uh, but anyway, Bernard learns that glycogen is uh, formed by the liver, and then he hypothesizes that the same type of sugar is found in the urine of diabetics. Um, in hmm. 1869, a German medical student, Paul Langerhans, which is going to sound familiar to anyone who's heard of the islets of Langerhans, uh, identified two different types of cells in the pancreas. Now, one type of cell, he said, all right, I understand this. This is the stuff that secretes the pancreatic fluids that we've kind of observed in previous medical uh, exploratory surgeries, things like that. Would that I got be it. another one of the humors? <laughs> bile. Let's just call it bile. Uh, but the second type of cells, which would be what we end up calling uh, the islets of Langerhans, also known as the beta cells that we mentioned earlier, they produce something else that was Kind of a mystery to him. He wasn't sure what it was that would turn out to be the hormone insulin. Um, and so uh, – but this was the beginning of that realm of exploration. In the 1870s, uh, you had a French pharmacist named uh, Apollinaire Bouchardat who made note that diabetic patients have less sugar in their urine during a time of food rationing in Paris when the Franco-Prussian War was taking place. So people were having less access to food. He noticed that his diabetic patients ended up having less sugar in their urine, and it began to give him the idea that perhaps there could be individualized diets for people who have this disease, ah. and that, that could improve their condition. Huh. Um, well, thanks, Franco-Prussian War. Yeah, sometimes sometimes some interesting developments come out uh, during times of conflict, and they aren't necessarily directly related to the conflict. It's just out of necessity mm -hmm. we learn things like that. Uh, so kind of fortuitous in a weird way. Fortuitous for diabetic patients, not so much for people who were fighting in the Franco-Prussian War. Less for them. Yes. yes. Uh, in 1889, researchers at the University of Strasbourg in France uh, removed the pancreas of a dog to see how it would affect the dog's digestion. And they observed that the dog developed diabetes. So they said, okay, so the pancreas seems to play some role in this disease that we've been studying for, for centuries now, but had very little actual understanding about it. Uh, by 1908, we get a German physicist, uh, George Ludwig Zulzer, who experiments by injecting a, quote, pancreatic substance, end quote, into diabetic patients. It seems to work a little bit. It actually does decrease the level of glucose in their blood. But... 
Yeah, severe side effects. Yeah. It is not a purified method of uh, insulin dosage. Um, it ends up being uh, – it's not an effective treatment because the side effects are so severe. Uh, in the 1900s, you have a couple of different things happening. Uh, Dr. Elliot Joslin uh, – by the way, this is where my notes originally started. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Elliot Joslin uh, wrote the first edition of The Treatment of Diabetes Mellitus in 1916. Uh, in 1910, Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer, which is possibly the best name I have ever read. Edward uh, Albert Sharpie Oh, I yeah. can't even do it. Edward. His name is my name too. Published a, a study on the pancreas. Uh, Sir Edward discovered that the pancreas produces a substance that non-diabetics would produce, and that would be insulin. So this builds on that that uh, islets of Langerhans research that was done decades before. Uh, so the name actually comes from insula, which means island, and it's called that because the islets of Langerhans were the source of the hormone. So they just continue to use the islands motif. Um, so we've got siphoning, we've got honey, and we've got islands all all wrapped up here in this disease. Right. If uh, your islands aren't working, you will siphon honey. Yes. In 1921, doctors Frederick Bonting and Charles Best would experiment with dogs that had had their pancreases removed. They inject dog insulin into the experiment animals, and they see that the glucose levels go down. Uh they would actually eventually get awarded the Nobel Prize for that. In fact, uh, technically, Banting was awarded it and shared it with uh, Best. Uh, James Collip developed a means of purifying insulin so that it could be used on humans. And then by 1923, just two years later, you get the first commercial production of insulin uh, from Eli Lilly and Company, which is still a major uh, producer of insulin. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the next several years, companies would develop different approaches to producing insulin, uh, including slow-acting insulins, fast-acting insulins, you know, all these sorts of different approaches depending upon uh, what you were specifically trying to manage. Um, one of the things that that people who have severe diabetes wrestle with is the fact that going to bed is terrifying because you want to make sure that you take the right insulin dosage to manage your glucose levels without going hypoglycemic, meaning your glucose levels fall too low, because that can lead to a very dangerous uh, episode. And if you're asleep, there's no, you don't have any warning signs before it happens. So the different types of insulin are absolutely necessary to, to deal with uh, diabetes at different stages. Uh, by 1936, you get Sir Harold Hemsworth, who publishes a paper distinguishing the two types of diabetes according to insulin sensitivity. But it wouldn't be until 1959 that these two types are formally defined in medical literature as type 1 and type 2. Uh, the American Diabetes Association would form in 1940 in response to increased rates of diabetes and heart disease in the United States. Uh, by 1944, you get the insulin syringe. It's a standardized syringe used for insulin dosages, and it, it actually... Uh, it revolutionizes diabetes management at that point. So the insulin was obviously the first major development, but this syringe made it far easier to administer the insulin and uh, dramatically improved the quality of life of, of millions of people who were suffering from diabetes. Uh, 1964, you get the first strips to test blood glucose levels. Up to that point, you were testing urine, not blood, which was less accurate. Uh, also, the earliest tests were 
incredibly elaborate. Like you had to boil stuff and oh goodness, yeah, yeah. You, you know, it was it was a very long process in mm-hmm. order for you just to get that initial readout of how much glucose was in your system. Uh, right, and this is frequently the kind of thing that you need to be on top of in a kind of immediate sense for best. Uh, Best response. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're because if you're looking at it and you're like, well, here these are what my glucose levels were an hour ago, it may not be the case at that point. And, Certainly, you know, or it may be that you've already suffered some terrible episode because of it. Uh, the first blood glucose meter would be developed in 1970, which was meant for clinical use, not home use. It was like a $500 device in 1970 and was meant. You know, that was just at the doctor's office. You weren't going to buy one and take it to your home. But 1970 also saw the development of a very useful piece of technology, the insulin pump, which has evolved quite a bit since its first uh, invention. But an insulin pump helps remove the need to do regular insulin shots. Essentially, it's a device. It is a pump that can pump insulin into you. And you can typically set the pump so that it uh, puts, injects a specific amount of insulin uh, into your system. And uh, it was a huge help for people trying to manage diabetes. It's standard issue for anyone who has type 1 diabetes uh, and is more frequently being used by people who have type 2 diabetes. It's not as common, but more type 2 are seeking out the possibility of using a pump. Um, so this is uh, – the way it works is that you typically have a, a little spring-loaded device that has the tube through which insulin will be delivered into your body. And it's got a little needle at the end of it to puncture you and and insert a catheter under your skin. So you would typically find some place around your abdomen. You would place the, the spring-loaded device onto that site after you've already prepped it, obviously – uh, activate it. It would then essentially inject and then place the catheter into into the place in your abdomen. You would remove the device. You would then remove the needle. And then you're left with a, a, a catheter that leads into your body. And the pump can pump insulin directly into your system that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's designed at a point now where people can self-administer this. I actually watched a video of a young boy. I mean, maybe like 12 or 13 years old Mm -hmm. doing this. Uh, Hard to watch for somebody like me who, one, I feel a lot of empathy toward the kid Mm -hmm. who, by the way, was like, this is so much better than having to give myself five or six insulin shots a day. Right. Uh, But also just the idea of like, you've got to do this and every, and and you can't just set it and forget it. You've got to replace it. Like you can't leave it in place indefinitely. Oh, sure. Of course. After, after like maybe up to three days, you would have to move, you have to remove it Mm -hmm. and prepare a new site and inject again. So it's a constant thing. It's one of those things where, you know, you're aware that this is going to be part of your routine from that point moving forward. It's one of the other things about this disease that uh, I think is easy to forget if you have never had to deal with it. It's that, you know, the, the treatment for it it, and and even just the monitoring of it can be painful. Mm-hmm. And and it's something that, that diabetics deal with. I mean, it's much better to deal with that than the symptoms of diabetes. Uh, sure. But, you know, like just a prick is is kind of a, an argument that you could you could conjure up in your head. But I don't know. J- just a prick several times a day, every day for the rest yeah. of your entire life is certainly it, certainly a thing. It's It could be discouraging. It mm-hmm. could discourage people into even checking to see if, they should be diagnosed because 
we have this weird thing as humans where not knowing is almost like not having it. Yeah. And if we don't admit it, then we don't have to go through that, that pain and that frustration and that uh, inconvenience. But the truth of the matter is it's much better than the alternative. It's just hard to imagine that when you aren't dealing with it yet. Right. Uh, moving on through the timeline, we're almost done. Uh, in, the 1980s, this is when researchers start to develop a technique to synthesize insulin using bacteria, which really simplified the manufacturing process, allowed you to create much greater yields of insulin. Um, and it's still a complicated process, but less so than it used to be. Uh, it also means that there's less likelihood of having like a shortage because you can uh, more easily manufacture it. However, as we mentioned at the top of this episode, it does not necessarily mean it brings the price down. Or at least that doesn't, it's not a big enough factor for that to be, you know, to, to actually decrease the price. So what was it like living with diabetes in the past? Probably not very good. <laughs> yeah. A, a lot of medical care in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to be fair, if you had type 1 diabetes, there wasn't really any living with it at all anyway. Uh, you would typically have a life expectancy of about five weeks Oof. because your body wasn't producing insulin. No one knew about insulin, there was no, it was, it was pretty much a death sentence. If you had type two diabetes, you might live a long life if it's not a severe case and you're not, you know, overindulging and, you know, just, just through happenstance. Um, but it would also be a life riddled with complications. But for centuries, no one knew how to treat diabetes. So mm -hmm. your quality of life would be poor to non-existent depending upon the type you had. Uh, by 1897, the average life expectancy for a 10-year-old child diagnosed with diabetes was one year, so to 11, and that's it. If you were 30 and you then developed diabetes, it, doctors would give you four more years. And if you were 50, the expect expectancy was eight more years. So actually, the older you were, the, the longer you would survive after being diagnosed with diabetes. But still, 1897, I mean, you you didn't have any uh, reliable treatments that could uh, give you a better quality of life. Uh, Dr. Rollo, who I mentioned earlier, wasn't the only physician to attempt to treat diabetes with changes in diet, and not all of those attempts were successful. According to the Defeat Diabetes Foundation, there was a French physician in the 1850s who treated diabetics by feeding them lots of sugar. Well, that makes a stupid kind of sense. If you <laughs> see the body is losing lots of sugar through urine, then maybe you need to replace it. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it didn't work, uh, yeah. and it was not a treatment that was um, pursued for very long. But and it's not the only time people were wildly incorrect with how they should treat diabetes. But it was one of those notable ones. And I should also mention. That while this did appear on their website, I did some preliminary research to try and find like some corroboration. Mm -hmm. Couldn't find anything, but that doesn't mean it it's not true. It just means that while I like I was giving myself very limited time for each of these sure. items because sure. <laughs> I didn't want to I didn't want to uh, spend uh, too much time on this one thing and then say like it's absolutely not true or it really is true and I didn't contribute anything else. Um, Survival rates among infants born to mothers with diabetes were really low initially. The fatality rate was greater than 50%. Dr. Priscilla White, 
who founded the Jocelyn Pregnancy Clinic in 1924, dedicated much of her career to fighting gestational diabetes. And by 1974, Dr. White had reached a 90% survival rate among babies born to her patients. So an incredible uh, turnaround of that that rate. So uh, uh, I felt that was absolutely yeah, needed yeah. To, to mention that Dr. Go, White played a great part in this. Go 20th century and go... Uh... Go go that go that nice woman's research. Yeah, yeah absolutely. By the 1920s, uh, commercial production of insulin had really transformed diabetes management. In, in fact, it became possible to manage diabetes beyond just trying to change your diet. Uh, that was further boosted in the 1940s with the development of that syringe I talked about. And by 2004, life expectancy for people with diabetes was much longer, but still 15 years lower than that for the general population. So... Uh, Transitioning now into some of the modern technology about how we diagnose and manage diabetes today. Well, first of all, we've got a ton of different glucose meters out there that are much more accurate. They typically require you to to uh, prick your finger and uh, put blood on a strip of paper and then analyze that, that blood using some sort of meter device. But they tend to be very, very accurate, which give people a good idea of what type of insulin, how much insulin they need to administer in order to manage their diabetes. Uh, we have a lot better understanding of the effects of different foods. So uh, sometimes diabetics want to eat something that is going to, you know, raise their glucose levels. And mm-hmm. so they'll, they'll sometimes you're at the Ren Fest and you're like, well, there's going to be a deep fried Snickers bar. Yep. And so you might, uh, you might take that into account and you adjust your, your insulin dose dosage for that day so that you can, experience that. Like it doesn't necessarily mean uh foregoing all types of foods that you might really like and then just eating things that are of uh that, that aren't starchy like avoiding carbohydrates entirely. Uh there's also some improvements to technology. So that insulin pump I mentioned earlier, there are now wireless pumps that are in various stages of development and deployment. And these wireless pumps, first of all, when you hear wireless pump, you might think like, well, is this an internal thing? Uh, how is it wireless? It's wireless in the sense that you can have a wireless connection between the pump and a glucose meter so that you still have a pump that you have to wear on your body somehow. Mm-hmm. Usually there's some sort it's of still strap. Still a catheter, or, still a, yeah, yep, sure. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's still got a tube from the pump to going underneath your skin. Uh, it clips on typically to a piece of clothing or something along those lines, but it can connect wirelessly to a glucose meter. So what you would do is you would go to test your, your glucose, your blood glucose level, and you'd prick your finger and do all that. And then the meter would make the measurement and then send that data to the wireless pump, which would then administer the proper amount of insulin in order to manage your glucose levels or even stop uh, administering insulin to make sure you don't go hypoglycemic. Uh, right. So what that means is is that if you're uh, if you're say out to dinner and and mm-hmm. you know that you need to um, you've either just finished something or you're about to eat you you know that you need to adjust your insulin levels you don't need to uh, uh, take your pump off at the dinner table. Right. And, and and manually punch in the buttons and do to a whole thing it. and then like stick it back in your body or, or or you know go to go to a restroom and do that kind of thing you can right. you can do it more um more discreetly right right yeah so you don't yeah it, it really means you don't have to fuss with the pump at all and that that like that is again another quality of life issue beyond the the pain of dealing with diabetes just to manage it properly there's also 
it's not so much a social stigma, but it, it you know, you don't want to have to. It's just embarrassing. You yeah. want to have to take out a medical device yeah. when you're sitting around dinner with friends. You don't want to make anyone feel self-conscious. You don't want to draw attention to it. You know, you just want to be able to enjoy your time without that added frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that those definitely have a an, a big advantage over the traditional insulin pumps. Um, and they're still in different stages of development. We'll talk more about that in our next episode. One of the things I saw that I thought was really interesting is that uh, another implementation of this approach is using smartphones and smartwatches as your your way of, of getting an indication about your glucose levels. So there's this one company that's offering a product that would pair with uh, Apple's iPhone and their, their watch as well. And the way it works is that you have an app, you download it to your watch and your phone, and you use a little sensor that this company provides. And uh, it has a thin wire. They say it's about the thickness of a hair. And you stick that under the skin uh, and secure the, the sensor to your body. Mm-hmm. It monitors your glucose levels, sends that information to a secondary device, which then takes the data, sends it to the cloud where it gets analyzed so that you get the actual proper blood glucose level. That data is sent to your iPhone, which then can be sent to your watch. There's a lot of different stops along this, this route, like a lot of uh-huh. points here. But the point being that you can look at your watch and get a very quick, accurate reading of what your blood glucose levels are and then respond uh, if necessary. Um, so huh. kind of interesting to see. Yeah. Like I wouldn't have necessarily thought of like the smartphone or, or smartwatch as being uh, a device that you could convert into like a medical device in this way. But it absolutely is something that could do that and allow you to keep – a really close look on that, and that could be very that could be life saving in, yeah. in the right circumstances. Yeah, um, and and this is kind of wrapping up our our initial episode yeah. about diabetes. We've we've covered yeah all, all that all that good juicy history stuff. Where we are now, um, you know, in the a lot of a lot of really interesting things are coming in the in the future. Uh, we're going to talk about them next time. Yes, so we'll we'll focus on a lot of research and a lot of thought that has gone into ways to. Uh, manage and treat and possibly cure diabetes and how far off are these things? Um, how uh, realistic are they? We're going to take a look at some of those questions in our next episode. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, write to us. Let us know. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. We are fwthinking on Twitter. If you go to Facebook and search FW Thinking, our profile will pop up. You can leave us a message there. And uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. We will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 